Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. The United States has long been associated with a very harsh criminal justice system, which in some cases leaves people serving long sentences for minor crimes. But attempts to reform the system have proven very difficult. Well, Colleen Aaron has written Reform Nation, The First Step Act and the Movement to End Mass Incarceration. Welcome to you. Thank you so much for having me. And I just think for, you know, given that uh, this is downloaded in every country on earth except North Korea, I'm pleased to say, uh, we, we should probably just establish what, you know, most people know, which is that the Americans do have a very, very harsh system. Can you just put some numbers in that and detail on that? Sure. Well, um, we have only 5% of the world's population, but 25% of the prisoners in the world. Um, we have about 2.2 million people who are in prisons or jails, and about 7 million people who are under some type of correctional supervision in the United States. Um, it's become such a ubiquitous problem that one in three Americans has um, a criminal record. And so really um, through direct, through personal experience, through family or friends, most Americans are impacted by, by mass incarceration. And is this a new thing? I mean, was it, was it, was the system always very harsh? No, in fact, um, if we were to go back to pre-mass incarceration at the beginning of the 70s, we were very much in line with um, the percentage of our population that was incarcerated elsewhere um, amongst advanced democracies. Um, it really is a phenomenon of the past 50 years um, that began with an overreaction to rising crime and um, through the, not only through the war on drugs, but through federal and state legislations throughout those that 50 years that dramatically increased our prison population from 250,000 approximately at the start of the 1970s to 1.2 million by 2008. Absolutely massive increase. Uh, it, you probably don't know the answer to this because it would be so hard to measure, but it, it, is there any research on whether American society does have more crime than other societies? Well, certainly compared to uh, Western Europe, to Canada, we have more more crime and more violent crime um, compared to other nations, um, no, but uh, certainly to those nations to whom we, we would consider ourselves um, comparable, we have higher rates of violence and higher rates of crime. However, I don't think that fully accounts for um, the reason why we have mass incarceration, which includes things like for the same type of violent crime, we have longer sentencing, harsher sentencing around those. So for instance, um, I think in Germany, the the maximum sentence for homicide is around 14, 15 years, whereas we have life without parole, which is also uh, unusual, but is meted out quite frequently in the US. 
Correct. And, and is there any sense in which um, you, you can say that, it, that the American system doesn't work in... Yeah, you've got these higher levels of criminality. Uh, hang on. Is, is it just naive and sort of too simplistic to say that the American system clearly doesn't work because you've got high crime levels and uh, high imprisonment levels? Yeah, I don't think that I don't think that that's a naive uh, conclusion. I think that it's a demonstration of the fact that it's not working properly. In fact, you know, in the American uh, presidential debates right now, one of the key issues is about fentanyl, and much of the same language is being used about um, curtailing its use that we've been hearing for fifty years, like war on drugs language. If the war on drugs were successful, we would not be having the conversation about fentanyl. And um, amongst the empirical research that has looked at the reasons for decreases in crime that have happened since the early 90s, um, incarceration levels themselves are a very small part of that conversation, of that um, uh, of the drop. And other factors such as demographic shifts, explain much more hotspot policing, more effective policing, explain the drop. So incarceration has been largely decoupled from the phenomenon of crime in the United States. And just one other bit on you know, the background before we get on to the, really the, the heart of your book, which is, which is actually on the movement to get this reformed rather than the situation itself. But just on the situation itself, finally, uh, you know, it is often said and pretty obviously true that there is a racist element to the, the 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 whole system. Yes, um, the history of the United States is littered with examples of how criminal justice, um, the criminal justice system, has emerged in um, in response to or is uh, emblematic of racialized systems of control. And so, our earliest examples of policing could be found in slave patrols. Um, but beyond that kind of origin story of how much race was implicated with the development of criminal justice, we just need to look at one example, which is crack cocaine sentencing in the U.S., which was 100 to 1 at the end of the uh, 1980s. So those who were using cocaine were sentenced um, 100 times less harshly than those who had uh, used crack. And so crack was associated with urban Black Americans and cocaine, of course, with a much more affluent white demographic. That still exists at a ratio of uh, 18 to 1 as of 2010. So even if it's something indirect, which does not explicitly involve race, we can kind of infer the, the racist under, underpinnings to some of these laws. Right. So that, that's the background. Now, uh, your book is examining the attempts to reform this. And I mean, I hadn't realised this as a sort of non-close observer of these matters, but Trump did actually uh, reform the system to a limited degree, which you know is quite surprising. Uh, so that was the First Step Act, which is in your subtitle. What was the First Step Act? When, well, first of all, when did it happen exactly? Yeah, so the First Step Act, I think, was a massive surprise uh, for, for many who were observer, not only observers, but who were in the movement. So the First Step Act was passed in, at the end of 2018, right before the government shut down due to uh, disputes about funding Trump's border wall, which was kind of poetic. Um, so it was signed in 2018. It was a federal level bill that had... Um, both a prison reform and a sentencing reform um, 
component to it. So in terms of prison reform, some of the reforms that were made were that women could not be shackled while they were pregnant or postpartum, which is a thing that happens in the United States. Um, they, they, uh, those who are incarcerated had to be placed within 500 miles of um, of their families. Sentencing reforms included um, reductions to mandatory minimums for certain types of drug offenses where people uh, were not given life without parole, but a minimum of 25 years. It also allowed for expanded clemency for people who were sick or dying um, while in prison. And importantly, it reduced the amount of time that many were spending incarcerated due to an expansion of what's known as earned time credits. So for every 30 days that um, someone spent in some type of programming to help them with their needs, around reentry, they'd receive 10 days essentially off their sentence at the end once it added up to the amount of time remaining for them to go into pre-release custody through electronic surveillance. So um, it's had, it, you know, it was a federal level bill, so it doesn't have the kind of ability to reduce mass incarceration substantively, but or substantially, but um, it's already been showing some some signs of really positive outcomes. So can you put a number on it? I mean, how many people are not in prison who would have been in prison as a result of it? Um, well, the numbers are, are very encouraging. So 29,900 29, people have been re- uh, released since 2018 from federal prison to return to their families who had would have not otherwise been released. Um, the First Step Act also made retroactive an Obama-era uh, bill, which uh, reduced the disparity between crack and cocaine. Because of that, 4,000 people were resentenced and had fairer, lesser sentences. Um, and about 4,500 people were redu- were released um, due to extraordinary circumstances in regards to clemency. So they could spend essentially what are the last days of their lives or, or times of sickness at home rather than in prison. Well, I've got to say, those are quite small numbers compared to what you told us at the beginning, which is (laughs) 2.2 million people. People, absolutely. But this is, we're dealing with the the federal um, system. Uh, In the US, we have federal level, and then each state has its own independent um, system of of state prisons. And so if we're just looking at the federal system, um, those are... Those are fairly substantial numbers, but yes, that's the problem that that the First Step Act could only be like literally a first step towards towards a dent in this in this system. And you're saying that anything that comes out of the White House will only affect the federal level. And so, how how many of the two point two million prisoners? How many are in the state system, and how many are in the federal system? The vast majority are in the state system, and the it's it's accurate that. Um, the federal at the federal level, you can only do so much. Um, but the impact of federal level legislation is that it sets a tone. Um, it's it's symbolic for the states, and um, kind of provides a prototype for what can be done in the states, but is in no way sufficient. Okay, so Trump did that, and we're going to discuss the movement that got him there. Uh, but just first of all, uh, what did Biden do? I mean, Trump Trump did that and then he lost power. W- what's Biden's record been on this? <laughs> well, Biden's record has been uh, pretty abysmal in terms of his record in the Senate. 
he was one of the folks that was advocating for harsher incarceration for predators alongside many of his colleagues in the 1980s and 1990s. He was a big proponent of the 1994 crime bill that was signed under Democrat President Clinton, which maybe did the most to drive up the numbers that we were talking about than any other bill or any other president. So he was a chief architect among that. Um, He walked back his language considerably uh, in response to Trump's <laughs> trying to engage in criminal justice reform. He was apologetic about his involvement in the politics of mass incarceration previously. He said to the ACLU that he would slash incarceration by half, but he's really made no gesture at either federal or um, state, you know, encouraging state policy that would actually achieve that. He stepped back from it considerably. Now, I don't know if you can hear it. Can you hear these planes going by? Maybe not. I can't, can no. Oh, that's good. Well, that's, that's good, because I was distracted by it. I'm pleased. Oh, I don't know what I can do about it. But the, the, it's the, really the, fine. Anyway, I, was dis- I was distracted by one. when you, I think you said that the, 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 the biggest increase was as a result of a Clinton measure. Is that right? Yes. The, the, the largest increase, when we're looking at from 19... 70 mid 1970s until the peak of mass incarceration was in 2008 um by far the 1994 crime bill under clinton did the most to set that to put oil on the fire um bills had been signed under reagan um in the 1980s that were uh increased sentencing for for drugs um, mandatory minimums, three strike laws, those types of things. But um, the 1994 bill was the most sweeping. And that's where you saw the numbers really skyrocket. And did Clinton do that? I mean, has he spoken about it afterwards? Has he said it was a mistake? Did he do it for horribly pragmatic reasons? Did he believe in it? What, what, what can you tell us about that? Um, this was very much, I think, a, and this is a, a quirk of the United States uh, vis-a-vis Europe, that our criminal justice system is highly responsive to public opinion. Um, Peter Enns has written a book called Incarceration Nation um, that that talks about some of the differences between the U.S. system and the European system. And so um, whenever there's uh, a hint of crime going up or being politically advantageous, you'll see politicians jumping on this because um, their positions are so sensitive to that kind of discourse. Um, we elect prosecutors, we elect judges here. So so we're not as immune to public response, especially at the beginning of the, uh, sorry, at the end of the 1980s, early 1990s, crime was very, very high in the United States. And so I think it was pure political, um, uh, seeking political advantage when everyone else was saying the same thing. George Bush was saying, build more prisons. Um, Hillary Clinton would later talk about predators. So it was very much in both the discourse of Democrats and Republicans. And I think this is an important point to make. You know, uh, I think the left sees itself as innocent in this um <laughs> in the story of mass incarceration, like they were on the right side of history, but everything in the literature and the history, political history, shows us that that mass incarceration was in fact a bipartisan creation. Yeah, and the very interesting thing about your book is that 
the, 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 the First Step Act and the, the campaign to get that done by Trump was also bipartisan to, to a surprising degree. And, and some quite, uh, you know, conservative people in the US system supported it. So how did that happen? Uh, you, you, well, the first point you make is it, it was a national movement. Tell us about that. Yes. Yeah, so beginning in the how did criminal justice reform become a national movement? Well, that really only started in the U.S. in the early 2000s. Prior to that, it was really niche. Um, the major, if you think about the major organizations, NGOs in the U.S., like the ACLU, the NAACP, the Urban League, um, and from the conservative side, the American Conservative Union, they didn't really have a focus on criminal justice reform. But for reasons that I go into in the book, one of which is this, the sheer scale of how many Americans were affected by this, one in three with a criminal record, um, they, they began to adopt it as part of their work in the early 2000s. So the ACLU gets on board, the NAACP. AACP gets on board with criminal justice reform and, and attacking mass incarceration, you also see the rise of organizations, national organizations, not local ones, that are dedicated to criminal justice reform, such as um, Right on Crime, which is the um, perhaps the most famous example of a conservative uh, NGO in the U.S. that's dedicated to um, ending over-incarceration. Yeah, and you run through some of the uh, groups of people who who campaigned on this, uh, starting with philanthropists. And it did occur to me that some of these very wealthy people in the United States probably have children who have taken drugs and ended up in trouble. Is that is is that true? <laughs> that's that's probably true. Um, one of the none of them cited their ch their children's drug use as a reason for getting involved. But um, one of the major givers in this space. Uh, Michael Novogratz, um, who funds Galaxy Gives, he's also a proponent of psychedelics, um, the expansion of legalization of psychedelics, its use in um, psychology. So that's that's very possible. Among the people who spoke to me, um, the major philanthropists, so Dan Loeb, Michael Novogratz, Laura Arnold, and um, Doug Deason, most had some type of personal anecdote about why it motivated them. In the case of Doug Deason, who is also the major Trump funder, he had skirted a brush in with the law when he was a teenager where he had broken into a friend's house. Um, and but for his being the son of a billionaire, recognized that he would have had a record that would have affected his life. And so he was motivated to... Um, to get involved in this to kind of even the playing field from a conservative perspective, like even out opportunities. Um, in the case of Michael Novogratz, his daughter was interning for Bronx Defenders, I believe. And so he was hearing stories about the chaos that goes on and the discrimination and uh, inequality that goes on in the system. Um, Dan Loeb overheard at um, an American Enterprise Institute um, Cory Booker, who's a senator here, talking about the sheer number of African-American males who are affected by mass incarceration. And Laura Arnold, I think, is just, you know, a problem solver who sees mass incarceration as a huge um, problem to be solved to, uh, you know, reduce human suffering and to make the system more efficient. So drugs, I think, was just a minor, like the idea of people's kids being involved in drugs didn't strike me as the most um, influential reason for their entry, but certainly I'm sure 
um, they recognize the disparity between if that were to happen to their kids versus if that were to happen to an, an urban kid. Yeah, well, I just wanted to, 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 to understand that a little more clearly then, because you, you said this guy broke into someone's house. I mean, I don't know whether it was to, you know, because his parents were out or something, or, or whether it was more serious. But uh, And you said he got off because he was a billionaire's son. So you're just making the point that people like that can buy lawyers and get themselves out of stuff. Is that what you mean? Absolutely. Well, he knew um, his family was very politically connected, and he, he you know says this. He knew Asa Hutchinson, who is running for president now, and um, they basically you know made sure, made a few calls, and he was just told, you know, don't, don't do it again. And so, yes, there's two systems uh, of, of justice, depending on whether you're wealthy or not wealthy, and especially if you're of color. So I think his recognition of that is what propelled him to be a big um, advocate of the First Step Act and other criminal justice reforms. And, and in the case of, you know, let's say, a senior politicians, or senior corporate leaders, or senior doctors, senior lawyers, child, uh, taking cocaine or, or, you know, which, which obviously happens the whole time, yes. and, in, including, <laughs> you know, f- former presidents, uh, <laughs> so they tend not to, what, how do they get away with it, is what I'm really asking. Well, there are decisions all along the way that are, that are tied to discretion. And so um, decisions not to prosecute are decisions that are ultimately in the hands of the prosecutor in a matter of discretion. Um, and so there's some level of, of, of corruption there, but um, oftentimes, you know, it's just someone showing up with a lawyer when no one else has a lawyer, the ability to advocate for their their civil rights, which is, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty. Uh, most Americans do not actually go through, in spite of like, you know, the law and order mythos, mythos around us, 96% of people take a plea. And why is that? It's because usually you don't have the resources to fight your case. So it could be a matter of discretion where the prosecutor just drops it because of, of a connection. Um, but it could also just be that they actually have the resources to bring their case to trial, which a prosecutor may may not want. Yeah. Uh, you, you mentioned philanthropists uh, as a group. Now, it's interesting to know this for sort of other purposes, if you like, because there will be other issues on which they've got an interest, like lowering taxes, no doubt, and that sort of thing. So, so, so how influential were the philanthropists? Uh, they're, they're enormously influential in several ways. One is a, a kind of direct influence on, on politics and law and the ability to advocate for clemency for individuals. Um, in terms of direct influence on policy, um, philanthropist Doug Deason was enormously influential behind the scenes um, and talked about, it's not secret, talked about it very openly, um, working with Donald Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, to advocate for and bring together the, the um, strange bedfellows that we saw in the First Step Act. So um, Doug Deason was participant in gathering together, especially folks on the right, from Right on Crime, Americans for Tax Reform, um, and get them to the table to be able to advocate for for a bill while Trump was president. Other philanthropists um, like Dan Loeb use their personal influence to advocate for people who they they feel have had an unjust 
um, sentence. For example, Daniel Loeb used his um, influence to end several hundred thousand dollars to have Bernard Noble um, released um, given the given the qualities of the case. But beyond these kind of individual one-off influences on either policy or clemency cases, philanthropists are really shaping the criminal justice reform landscape because there's about $700 million right now in that space that are largely coming from large philanthropies. And so in addition to just the dollar amount, which is unprecedented, um, every time philanthropists get get involved in this as uh, through their philanthropies as doers, shaping the agenda, wherever they put their money and their focus, that shapes the entire field. So if philanthropists want to do bail reform, for example, and they're putting money behind that in their philanthropies, that shifts the entire field to then be focused on bail reform versus something else. So this is something new of the past 15 years. And we're, we're, we're getting a sense right now of just how, how massive the gravity is around them. You have a chapter on philanthropists and then one on influencers, yes. so celebrities <laughs> and, and the like. So how, how do they compare in terms of their power? Well, I think that um, one of the one of the theoretical political theoretical tools that I use in the book is this idea of post-democracy, um, which is an idea of Colin Couch. And what he what he argues is that in post-democracy, you begin to have these overlapping systems of elite influence. So you have politicians, you have people in business, you have people in uh, pop culture and the the threads, the, the synergies, the synthesis is tighter and tighter and tighter. Um, and so they often are in the same, the same spaces and they influence, um, each other. So, um, someone who's in pop culture might influence a billionaire to get involved in a particular cause. For instance, they have enormous amount of power to bring attention through their, their platforms to gain access to those who are in political power. So for example, in the book, I talk about Kim Kardashian, (laughs) who, um, I've never watched a show, so it's all been like, you know, learning about her secondhand. But, um, you know, she was a big factor in getting Trump to listen to the cries for help of people who were sentenced for to life for first time drug offenses, such as Alice Marie Johnson, who then became a big figure in the First Step Act. So if it weren't for Kim Kardashian going to the White House and advocating, um, this person, Alice Marie Johnson, wouldn't have been released. She later was featured in a football and a Super Bowl ad for the president, for President Trump. And um, she was a First Step Act kind of story that she, she would have been released under the First Step Act. And so therefore, he was highly, Trump was highly motivated to do to pass the legislation for people like her. So celebrities have access where advocates normally wouldn't. But I think that trying to extricate the influence of celebrities from the influence of philanthropists or or other um, kind of elites in politics is, is very messy because right now they're, they're, look, Donald Trump was a celebrity. So like where one, one field ends and the other begins is not so neat. Yeah, fair point. Uh, that, uh, now, another very interesting group that you wouldn't have expected to be involved in this was is, is corporate and business leaders. Yes, uh, increasingly so, actually. Um, so at the at the the beginning the of the first step back story, there were a limited number of corporations who were willing to give their name specifically to the bill. Um, Verizon was one of them. However, 
um, they were using a lot of language at the time of it being good for um, those who were returning home that they'd be able to gain employment. It really started taking off with um, post George Floyd, where corporate social responsibility, particularly around racial justice, was becoming so important. And so you saw um, the uh, JP Morgan, for instance, get involved. The Second Chance Business Coalition was launched kind of out of the ashes of this um, business roundtable. Um, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce all began advocating for second chances for those who are incarcerated. And I think that it's not it's not actually as unlikely as you would think if we consider that during this period of changing attitudes towards incarceration over the past 20 years, we had an extremely tight labor market where <laughs> businesses needed bodies and um you know, we had this vast un untapped reservoir of people returning home who were blocked because of um, having to check a box, uh, having their prison record and not having the tools to reintegrate. So I think it makes good business sense in addition to it just being um, being on the right side of history, which was impelled upon corporations through a new attention to corporate social responsibility. But do, when they when they make the case, do, do they say explicitly we need the labor? <laughs> no, I, I don't think that they they explicitly let me let me think if they've explicitly said that they couch it. No, they don't say that they couch it in terms of wanting to expand like a creative pool of diverse applicants um, and that type of thing. But um, Jeff Korsnick has written about um, in his book, Untapped talent about how businesses really have come to this this realization that this is a population that they can't ignore if they want to um, be have their uh, full employment level. Hmm. Have you come across um, a UK company called Timpsons? I have not. They, 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 they're on every high street. They do shoe repair and, and key cutting, you know. So there'll be a small kiosk on quite a few high streets doing that the company is run by a family called Timpson and they are Quakers and and they they you know I mean the 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 the, the top Timpson uh, or at least the eldest Timpson uh, is you know is a Brexiteer I think there's, there's a son who's a conservative member of parliament so on the right of politics uh, but they have this policy of employing ex-prisoners and it, it is a massive uh, the well-regarded uh, thing they've done because they they have rehabilitated hundreds of men who come out of prison and no you know no one will employ them and and the Timpsons give them a chance and they virtually and he says they very very rarely don't deliver for him. Yes, well, uh, some of the some of the benefits that have been cited by by businesses is just the loyalty that you know people who are looking for an opportunity are so grateful for being given that that opportunity, and you know often one of the shining examples that we've seen in the Wall Street Journal of second a second chance business is Nehemiah Manufacturing, which not only says we will hire people who have um, a criminal record, but we're going to provide wraparound services. So we're going to have social workers, we're going to have transportation, we're going to have housing, we're really going to work at this. They were motivated, um, Nehemiah is a, is a biblical story, so it comes from a, a Christian ethos 
Um, and so I don't think it's so surprising that those who are coming from a right-leaning orientation who see redemption and second chances as part of their, you know, their, their faith would be behind these types of um, strategies. Well, that does get me on to a question I wanted to ask you. So when, when you know, you've gone through these very interesting groups, and there's some pretty other obvious ones like uh, pressure groups who you've mentioned, actually, who've been active on this and, and victims of the system who've advocated and so on. But when you saw the first step act go through, there were these very right-wing politicians uh, standing in the room with Trump, uh, encouraging him to sign it. So what was their ideology? Was it that idea of Christian redemption? Was it that just so many of their voters are affected by this and that it just it added up electorally? I mean, was it Trump appealing to the, you know, the, the deplorables, as Hillary Clinton put it? What was it um, for the right that put them there? Right. I think it's, I think it's um, almost all of the above of what you said. Um, but in addition, there was this socio-historical moment of having low crime. And so I think that for politicians, however motivated they were by um, a Christian ethos, it was also an ideal political opportunity because Americans were not talking about crime. Crime was like one of the lowest issues um, on voters' minds because it was so <clears throat> so low historically. So that was kind of the fertile ground. I think that there was, um, because this was led largely, the First Step Act, um, by initially right-leaning groups like the American Conservative Union, like Prison Fellowship, like Right on Crime, they were they were kind of given you know um, face. Someone could vouch for their ability to sign on to this group as conservatives. Um, that it was a conservative thing to to do. It ticked all the boxes for not being weak on crime. It was actually about reentry and getting jobs and strengthening families. Um, in addition to this this ethos, which I think is very powerful as far as what actually moves people. Um, on the right, I do think it is this, this Christian narrative or idea of redemption. And um, there's a sense among conservatives that mass incarceration or over-incarceration had gone too far in, in not allowing people a second chance. The other thing is that, yes, uh, among, among the people who I interviewed on the right, Many said that they thought the opioid, and I quote, the opioid crisis helped <laughs> that so many uh, in white America, in conservative America, had family members, friends who had died um, from the drug war, um, from from um, drug use. And then the war on drugs did nothing to help that. In fact, they saw good people be arrested and given long sentences for just an addiction that should have been a public health problem, that all these factors coalesced into making it an issue that that conservative Republicans could get behind. Let's uh, just talk then briefly about the opposition to the reform. I, I, I mean, I've heard it said that the companies who are running this prison system are making a lot of money out of it and that they are presumably paying off politicians and uh, lobbying, as they would call it, for the system to continue uh, is you know and who was is, is that right and who was with them so, so believe it or not the major um private prison 
corporations in the United States were behind the First Step Act. Um, so first, first, I think that there's a misperception about just how strong the influence of private prisons are in driving mass incarceration in the U.S. Um, private prisons only make up like 12 percent of our of um of prisons in in the U.S., so it's by far public prisons. But this doesn't mean, of course, that public prisons are not providing profits or profit or profit incentives to those who work for it. But um, the major private prison companies in the U.S. were among the first businesses to sign on to the First Step Act, and the reason is that they're beginning to see themselves not just as purveyors and sellers of uh, jails and prisons, but in um, pre-release um, uh, uh, custodial release services, re-entry services. So they're trying to reinvent themselves around um, electronic monitoring, around halfway houses, around alternatives to incarceration where they can still also make a profit. Interesting. And 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 were the politicians uh, saying no? We mustn't do this. We must keep. 2.2 million. We need more in jail. Well, the, the, the fascinating part of the story for me is that the, those who were most opposed to it were not on the right initially. It was on the left. Um, the initial uh, vote in favor of the First Step Act when it was in the House was that more Republicans supported it than Democrats. And the reason was that it was thought that the First Step Act, because it was federal, um, because at first it did not include sentencing reforms like changing mandatory minimums, that it didn't go far enough to addressing the problem. And so they saw, saw, saw it as kind of selling out the cause. Um, so they withheld their support until prison until, excuse me, until sentencing reform was added. So a lot of the opposition initially came from the left, not only because of what I mentioned, but because the left also hates Trump <laughs> and doesn't want to give Trump a victory, even if it's, you know, for something like incremental prison reform. But yes, there was a very vocal contingent to the end, um, Senator Tom Cotton being among them who just will live and die by this, you know, law and order, harsh, punitive, retributive sentencing at all costs and and uh, despite the obvious failure of that system all right well let's get to the title of the podcast and the future of this uh so you know will there be more or or have you ha have we just seen you know the peak of of the reform that's a great question i think that you know post um i'm not i'm not sure how how much uh, UK listeners are aware of what happened post-2020 with George Floyd, a black man who was murdered under the knee of a white police officer and, and sparked massive um, protests, civil unrest. So reform was really reaching like a public consensus peak right at that point. There was consensus that policing was racist, that it needed reforms. Everyone was saying we've reached a golden era and there's going to be just, you know, complete reevaluation of mass incarceration. A few months later, this starts changing rapidly. Um, homicide spikes in the U.S. Um, during during the next six months, and so you began to see this whiplash effect of Americans um, or politicians trying to get back to a more law and order message. So it's raised this question of is criminal justice reform dead? And I really think that that's a very pessimistic and um, inaccurate reading of what's happening. I think that there are, because of the U.S. system, which is highly influenced by public opinion, there is um, 
there is some backlash. However, the sheer scale of the system affecting so many, as I mentioned, one in three with a record, um, the fact that we now have these diverse coalitions of right and left um, working in the states, working on federal legislation, the fact that we have close to a billion dollars pouring in from philanthropy is we have corporations like JP Morgan, Butterball, Walmart, all of them saying we want people to come home and not have the stigma of a record. And then the, you know, pushing forward with the leadership of these people who have been um, incarcerated and who are now given power to shape the narrative. I think that in spite of those headwinds, we can, we can continue to look for uh, steady progress. However, a real, a real pessimistic attitude I have in regards to reform is for us to go back to 1972, we'd have to have 1 million fewer people in prison. <laughs> and if we were to just say that to the American population, I want a million fewer people in prison. They think it was like some type of, you know, utopian um, hallucination. I don't know if we're ready for that kind of conversation or that that kind of concerted push yet. And I'm not optimistic in the next 25 years that that will happen. But certainly steady incremental change, um, recognizing that there is a move away from um, harsh punishment in general. The United States was executing kids until 2005. There is there is hope for incremental change. That's great. So thank you very much for talking to us. Thanks so much, Owen.